when you confront death at age 22, everything changes. It got me thinking about what I wanted to do before I actually die. Because life is unpredictable. Can you relate? I'm Kiki Kelly, and this is my story. My friend Amy Hallberg thought I should share some of my stories with you. She'll be joining me here. Some are hard, some are funny, and some are just unbelievable. But they're all true. So here we are. Season 2, Episode 6. Tales from an Inadvertent Bucket List Champ. You promised us you'd talk about how you met your Jungian analyst. So, (laughs) how did that come about? Oh my gosh. So I'm at IBM Silicon Valley Lab, and I think I typed into Ask Jeeves. Um, Okay, (laughs) not Google. No, because Google wasn't really up and running or well-known. Ask Jeeves was, was one of the top search engines at the time. So I type in Jungian analyst and... God knows why, because all I had ever done before was that gestalt therapy with the social worker three in North Carolina after the stabbing, right? Right. But I had, I guess, Fritz Perl's gestalt therapy led me to read a little bit on Jung, like man and his symbols is probably what I read. I just thought, wow, that'd be really you know, interesting. I, I wasn't coming out of the funk of 9-11 and losing my dog. Those two things happened and I just couldn't get out of the funk. So I, I was going to seek out help. So up pops a PDF kind of roster of a, a Jungian conference and the names of analysts there and where they're from. So I look for the California ones and the ones closest to me. And there are actually several. So then I'm, I go with my intuition and I'm like, hmm, you know, Maria, that's, that's a cool name. And she lived in the town next door. So I gave her a call. <laughs> She's like, who is this? Were you, re- <laughs> who, were you referred to me? And I was like, no, I found you on the internet. And she goes, no, I'm not on the internet. I mean, she was kind of hostile. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, and nobody was on the internet back then that they knew of, right? I mean, the internet was for porn, right? Yeah, exactly. And so she was <laughs> surprised and shocked and a little appalled and whatever. But so she was just like, what? I'm like, well, I was just wondering if you're taking any clients right now. And she goes, no, I'm completely full. And she goes, I just don't even understand how you found me. And, and I was like, well, I'm sorry. You know, and then, and then I thought the phone call would be done. She was going to be like done with me. And I'm like, okay, that's the end of that experiment. But then she kind of paused and she was like, huh, well, this is just odd enough to maybe be a sign. And she goes, <laughs> okay, well, just go home and, and dream tonight and then come back tomorrow and tell me your dream. Okay, that's no small order. And I was like, okay, um, <laughs> bye. And you know, and I've never dreamed on command before, but the strangest thing happened. I actually had one of the most bizarre dreams I've ever had. And I've never had a dream in which it was just a disembodied voice again since then. But the dream was a disembodied voice that said, squaring the circle, circling the square. So I call her up the next day and I say, this is my dream. And she's like, oh, fine. Come on, you know, five o'clock on Thursday, I'll fit you in. (laughs) Okay, what is squaring the circle and circling the square? What is that? Well, it's a geometric conundrum because it's an impossibility mathematically to square a circle or circle square. And also, like, for example, in the Yijing, in Chinese literature, the circle represents heaven and the square represents earth. 
And so you're trying to bring earth and heaven together, bring heaven down to earth. So this is a very big Jungian symbol. And of course, I have no idea of that because I don't know anything at this time. And she's freaked out because I could not have had a more Jungian dream, right? So she's like, clearly this person, it, it was brought to me somehow. Like, this is just one of those things that happens to me. So I go to her house on Liberty Circle, which I thought was really funny too. Liberty from depression, yay. <laughs> um, and there's this, she's, she, she's given me very, I mean, this is a woman who is incredibly organized in particular, right? And so she's got her regular house. And then as an addition to the house, there's a separate gate. And you have to stay in your car until the other client comes out, goes to their car. Then you can get in your car that for privacy, right? You can get out of your car, go open the special gate. And there's this little string that you wouldn't see if you, unless you knew to look for it. So you pull the string. It's like magic garden, right? You go into this garden and it's this beautiful Zen garden. I mean, it's just absolutely marvelous. There's this, this bench that you can sit on and wait until she opens the door. So when she opens the door, then you enter into her office and her office is to me a magical place. It is, I just had never seen anything like it. There were all these amazing books that I thought looked so interesting and I wanted to read. There were figurines of Buddha and ancient fertility goddesses and labyrinths and just all these symbols and, you know, Celtic crosses and just from all over, from every religion and every part of the world. And clearly she had been to Japan because there was a beautiful silk screen there. And I was like, wow, this woman is extraordinary, you know, and I'm a little intimidated by her. She's beautiful. She's tall. She wears these wonderful drapey, colorful shawls and everything. And I'm just like, uh, yeah, I just feel like a little toad, right? <laughs> so, well, geez. especially when you think about why you're going to see a Jungian analyst, you've spoken about how you're doing dream work there, which means you're delving into some of your earliest memories. Well, I had no idea what to expect, but that never stops me from just jumping off a cliff. (laughs) (laughs) So, So in I went, and one of the first things she says is, well, I asked her about the dream and of course, she, she tells me what it means to archetypal psychology. And then she asks me right away, my favorite fairy tale or story that I wanted to read again and again or, or have read to me again and again as a child. And I immediately answer The Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen. And then I, you know, I didn't know why, but, but just so, so it was kind of this, this unfolding process. And, and each time I would share, I couldn't even express exactly the angst that I was feeling or, or why or, or how to get out of it. And I wasn't sure exactly how this was going to help, but it was so fascinating. <laughs> it was like, I really looked forward to it every week. And it, it got me thinking and wanting to read new books. And it just was this whole other world that I didn't know anything about. So each time we would analyze a dream and I realized that you can bypass your conscious and your ego and everything that is like an editor and says no and is repressed and you know depression is pressing things down well you can get into your unconscious your subconscious by way of the dreams it's the magic road to the dreams and so i still i didn't have complete buy in you know i was still a little skeptical until i had this dream about an alligator fish and i just thought it was the strangest thing so i i searched for it and up popped 
the garfish, like this thing actually existed. It's a fish that lives in the Rio Grande River. It's ancient. It's like a precursor to the alligator. So basically you dreamed of a fish that exists, that was highly improbable, that you didn't know existed. Correct. Yeah. And from then on, I was like, whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> that's cool. I'm like, that. So then I'm, I'm really interested, like, well, what, what other contents are in my subconscious that, that haven't, that need to come into the light of the day, into the frontal lobes, into consciousness. So um, we kept working it like that. And I found out that her analyst that she was still in touch with was Marion Woodman, who is a famous author and speaker on the Jungian circuit. And I was amazed because Maria thought some of my dreams were so interesting. She was actually discussing them with Marion Woodman. And I was like, oh my God, this is crazy, right? It's crazy. And then Maria has four sons. And, you know, she was just this, I admired her so much. And she and I worked so well together that, that it became kind of a mother-daughter relationship or for sure mentor or mentee. And she was going to run this conference. She, this is one of the things that she does. She goes to these amazing spiritual spots in the world and runs a conference. And so she was doing one in Sebastopol, California at the Mother Tree Retreat Center. And she asked me to be her assistant. And so I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do or whatever. But again, I jump off the cliff and say, yes, sure. Of course, Maria, if you think I can do it, whatever you want. So the first like day and a half or maybe even two days of the retreat were in complete silence. And we go to this yurt and everyone meditates <laughs> and we, and we were free to roam about, you know, in the redwoods and there's a labyrinth that you can walk silently and it's just such an unnerving experience to be completely silent. So by the time that we actually could speak again, we gathered around in the conference room and talked about what that was like. What was that like to try to communicate or, you know, what, what came up? What did you dream about? What did that silence mean to you? Was it easier to meditate? But it was, she bridged East and West. And that became a theme, a lifelong theme for me. My, every place I've lived since then, there are items that are from the far east and there are items from the Renaissance West, you know, and bridging right. those together, east meets west is really important. Plus, every place I've ever had any opportunity to remodel or build, I've put the circling the square or the squaring the circle motif either in brick or an inlay in the floor in slate. So there's one in front of my house. Have I shown it to you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, well, it became my symbol. And I think this is fascinating. Your experience with this Jungian psychology and these dreams, which are, as you said, really more about imagery than words, really helped you to tap into your artistic side. And there was a dream you spoke of that opened you to that. Yeah. So one of her goals, I mean, everything about her was done in imagery. So each client had a folder that she'd keep track of. She'd take notes, you know. The Freudians like have you on a couch or whatever that we, I was sitting on a couch just looking at her, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like that. It wasn't weird in any way. <laughs> like not, not to say anything bad about Freud, except that Jung was his prized pupil and he broke away from him um, because he thought Freud focused too much on everything was sex, right? And everything right. was predetermined and Jung didn't believe that. Adler also broke away. Adler was the other star student and Adler ended up working on the power principle and everything was sex with Freud. And for Jung, it became archetypes. 
So the archetype of the hero, the archetype of the queen, the king, the fool, whatever. And that really helped you to connect with your art. Yeah, one of Jung's primary means of promoting healing is to take unconscious contents and make them material. So he would have his patients do art therapy, for example, or discuss their dreams if if they weren't to the art point yet. But but before long, I was to the art point. And I had, um, I woke up and I, I jotted down like, I think it was like seven images it was like, it was almost like a series. It was, it was a weird dream. And I, I remember even just the title came to me, The Evolution of Woman. Um, somehow I knew that each of the images had to be done in a different kind of artistic way. So the very first one was of Saturn, except Saturn was black. In alchemy, which is also very rife with imagery that the Jungians love to call from. I mean, they find the alchemists' books interesting to study because it's not, I mean, these weren't dummies, the alchemists. Like Sir Isaac Newton was an alchemist. He spent years and years doing it. And what Jung figured was they weren't actually physically trying to turn lead into gold, but what they were trying to do is go through a psychological process of growth and integration. Hmm. So I know that sounds sort of strange. All of this sounds strange. No, it's it's really important to what's going to come. It's very, yeah, it was, was, so this Saturn was considered, the the other name for Saturn is Kronos, which means time and karma and your fate and everything. And they call it Soul Niger. So I dreamt of Soul Niger with a giant tarantula that was trying to jump out of the rings. Mm -hmm. That was the first image. And I knew it had to be done in just crayon. Like it was obviously a very, very young content from my unconscious. The next vision was, the tarantula turns into a fallen angel. So that one I did in marker. You know, it's getting, we're getting a little bit older. The right. fallen angel turns into a bat, which lands in the middle of an urban cityscape with its wings broken and it's trying to move, but it, it's just kind of, you know, pulling itself along. And I did that one in paint. I think it was just acrylics and it was all gray and black. It was an urban jungle, you know, just kind of really depressing. And then somehow the bat went into a Russian forest with the Matryoshka dolls. Oh, yeah. And there was a giant moon, a full moon behind it. And for that one, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to learn how to do the wood carving. I went and got the supplies and I taught myself how to do this. And I I did this, you know, Matryoshka doll. You like those nesting dolls, like one doll inside the other, inside the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, that led to the next one was done in pastels in oil pastels and it was a swamp with finally you get a human figure it's a naked woman who clearly is in some kind of coma state if not dead she's at the bottom of this swampy pond thing bog i called her bog woman (laughs) and out of her belly button grows a water lily a lotus yeah, lotus, right. And I, what I what I didn't know was the navel. There are lots of myths. There's so much research. I'm still researching this series of dreams. I mean, it was so far beyond my knowledge base. And and it it, it just astounded me that these images came out of me, right? Like how can you dream about things that you don't even know anything about? So after the the woman with the lotus and out of her navel comes up, then the woman becomes a tree. She's part of the tree and it's a willow tree and her hair are the willow branches and they're whipping and it's clearly a storm-tossed wind and she's 
screaming and it's all done in red. I mean, there's just clearly it's anger, right? Right. There's this very angry, but she's stuck in this tree. And it reminded me of in Dante's Inferno, the suicides end up as these trees, these bloody trees. Anyway, so. <laughs> this is one dream. Yeah, this is all. Yeah. And I, I just, they were, wow. it was just a series of images and I just wrote the images down. And, and as I created each of them, they had a life of their own. Each one forced you to teach yourself more art techniques. Correct. Correct. And I would take each one as I did it and show it to Maria and we'd talk about it. And the very last one, after the angry woman tree, we finally get a human being that's alive. It's a baby in a bassinet with the mother and the father behind the bassinet and all of the ancestors. Oh, wow. Yeah. The evolution of woman. And of course, you know, the stages of grief are clearly in there. And there's also probably ancestral patterning and just there's so much. There's so much to archetypal psychology. I thought it was fascinating. I totally wanted to be a Jungian psychoanalyst. So I started looking into the Carl Jung Institute, which is the premier one in Kusnacht, Switzerland, which is right across the Zurichsee, uh, Lake Zurich from where one of my best, best friends in the entire world lives. Yeah, so I wanted to go live in Zurich and go to the Carl Jung Institute. And my future ex-husband and I had a deal, you know, he was going to start a business and then sell it and then we'd move. And we got as far as me getting into the Institute and my friend looking for an apartment for us and... What I think is fascinating about this is that you dreamed about all these things and there are these conscious dreams we have for ourselves. Like you had this conscious dream of going to Switzerland and that one didn't work out. In fact, to to bring it to this moment in time with COVID, with this quarantine, there's all sorts of people who had dreams. They thought they were on the path to those dreams and they didn't work out. You have other dreams that worked out for you. This one was not one that was ever fulfilled so far. Right. And it's ironic because I taught um, Langston Hughes what happens to a dream deferred. That was a huge, one of my huge assignments for one of my English classes. And yeah, I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken that I couldn't go. And what happens to a dream deferred? Well, in my case, though, two years and a divorce later, I don't know if enough people had asked the Carl Jung Institute for, you know, something. For those of us who couldn't get to Toronto or New York or Houston or San Francisco, there was nothing in the middle of the country. So they started up the Interregional Jungian Society and the seminars and classes were going to be out of McAllister College, which is in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I could certainly do that. Yeah half an hour from your house or less. I know. So, you know, it's strange how the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. <laughs> and if you if you had a magic wand, would you wish for any of that to change at this point? I wouldn't because I wouldn't be who I am today. And I understand that what I'm hoping for is at the end of this horrible pandemic that we don't go back to business as usual that we take a good hard look at the structural underpinnings of our society and what has been laid bare, what things don't work, who, who is most affected by coronavirus and, and why? Why is our healthcare system linked with employment? I mean, just all of these 
questions that I hope are asked and answered so that there's some meaning for this horrible time and all of these deaths. That's what I would, if I had a magic wand, I would, I would wish that good, positive change would come out of this because we are seeing the dark contents of our unconscious as a society right now. We and are in the stage of have grief. to look at those dark things. It's the progression you described. You have to look at those dark things before you can come to the light. Exactly. And unfortunately, going, it's kind of like, okay, so there's this, the ancient mythology of Inanna. I think it was in Mesopotamia. I think it's one of the earliest, maybe it's Sumerian, but it's one of the earliest myths. And Inanna has to go down into Hades in order to retrieve her husband. I mean, it's kind of the precursor to Isis and Osiris. And that's a precursor to Dante's Inferno. And anyway, Inanna has to, she's a queen and she goes into hell and she is immediately stripped of all of her regal accoutrements, right? She has to go naked. Everyone has to go naked and suffer. And she's put on this, she's impaled on a pole. You know, you go through this horrible suffering in order to bring those contents that are are magic she brought her husband you know and knowledge back up to the world and the world was changed for the better and first you have to descend before you ascend Mm. and right now we're in a descent for sure and yet to go back to this what brought you to the Jungian analyst was depression and that caused you to start to pay attention to your dreams and you had some pretty crazy dreams And then there's the one that you never even dared to imagine. Okay, so on April 21st, 2004, and I know this because it's in my journal, because um, Maria taught me to make special dream journals that nothing else could go into but dreams and keep it by your bedside table. And so I wrote down the date. And the dream was this beautiful garden, kind of pagan, you know, with fountains and everyone's like light glowing light and they're all wearing soft white garb, kind of like togas. And up comes this older gentleman who looks like a sage, you know, he's got a white beard and white hair and he's got piercing eyes and he's holding hands with this tiny little cherubic girl who has these curls in her hair and she looks like she's about two and a half, three years old. And he puts her chubby little fingers and her chubby little palm into my hand. And he said, this is my daughter. You've done well. Come and join the dance. And I took her little hand and we followed him and another woman. I don't remember who she was. And we went off to join the dance. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tales from a Bucket List Champ. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with friends. New to us this season, our sound editor is the fabulous Kat Schoner. Our story editor and producer is me, Amy Hallberg, and our writer and executive producer is Kiki Kelly. We'll be back next time with Episode 7, Come and Join the Dance. Until then, what's one item on your bucket list?